We are uh, taking a detour from 1 Corinthians for uh, the next few weeks up through Easter to help prepare us for Easter. Um, and we're doing that through a study of Isaiah's servant songs in uh, the latter portion of that prophet. So tonight we're turning to Isaiah 42. We're, we're going to read one verse. Actually, we're not even going to read one whole verse. We're going to read part of a verse. Uh, this is serving us, uh, serving as an introduction for us into this portion of, of the book of Isaiah, um, of these passages known as the servant songs. Please leave your, keep your Bible open after we've read, and then uh, we're going to be doing a lot of turning uh, throughout the evening to different um, parts of these servant songs. But uh, to get us started, Isaiah 42, verse 1, we've just sung, actually, uh, from, the, from the Psalter hymnal, a, a song that sort of takes the major themes of these servant songs and puts them together. Uh, Behold my servant, that was the name of the song, it's the name of our sermon, that's how our text begins tonight. Let's give careful attention to God's word. This is God speaking to us. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. In 2019, an elderly woman in her 90s was moving out of her home in Compiègne, France. I think that's how you say it. Probably not, but it's near Paris is what I read online. Uh, she had been uh, living there for decades, and the entire time she lived at this house, she kept a small a portrait hanging over a, uh, a hot plate in her kitchen, just hanging there on the kitchen wall. And it was a depiction of Christ being mocked in his final uh, moments before his crucifixion. She left it there after her move, along with almost everything else that she owned. She was downsizing, didn't take many things with her. And uh, it was surely destined for the trash bin. The family didn't really like it. They thought it was a, um, you know, just a religious icon. They thought that originated in Russia and uh, kind, of a, kind of a depressing picture. Um, but uh, they called an auctioneer to come and to uh, examine the furniture that their mother had left uh, to see if anything of it was of value or should they toss it all. And it was the auctioneer who noticed this painting and thought, there might be something more to it than they realized. Fast forward to today, the painting hangs in the Louvre. It was sold at an auction several months after being found for 24 million euros. This 10 by 8 inch little painting um, that was kept over the, the stove uh, was discovered to actually be an original from an Italian painter, uh, Cimubu, uh, Cimubue. I'm, all these words tonight, Italian and French. Uh, Chimabue, I think is how you say his name. Apparently, though, he's important because his work sells for 24 million euros. Um, an Italian painter from the 13th century. Sometimes the most valuable things are hiding right under our noses, uh, as was the case here. And that was something of the discovery I had of Isaiah's servant songs recently. I knew they were there. Uh, I knew what they were. Uh, but I never thought to study them in detail, and when I did, when I did what I found was a uh, treasure of Christ-exalting, spirit-enlarging, gospel-glimmering gold that I want us to mine together uh, over the next six or seven weeks. 
Um, and all of this is just in tiny, a tiny portion of a big book, four relatively brief passages um, that are found in a book of 66 chapters. Could there really be something that valuable in this, this tiny, these tiny passages? Sort of like could this 10 by 8 inch painting uh, by that Italian painter, could it really, uh, something so small, really contain uh, so, something so rich? There is, there's gospel gold in these passages, and I want to explore them uh, with, with you. And so we're going to ask three questions tonight, just kind of give us a point of entry into the servant songs, uh, the songs of the suffering servant from Isaiah. Uh, the first point of inquiry is simply this. What are these songs? That's the first question. What are these songs? Uh, they don't necessarily read as songs uh, the way we're used to thinking of songs in the modern era, but they're called songs because of uh, their poetic structure in the Hebrew language, because of the exalted, more sweeping um, language that's used here. They're called servant songs, more specifically, uh, because of their main theme, the servant of the Lord, who's called as much in each of the songs. Uh, the servant is either the subject or he is the singer. And so these are all about, in one way or another, the uh, obed, that's Hebrew for servant, the obed of Yahweh, the Lord, the servant of the Lord, obed Yahweh. And if you shorten the divine name and you just add the Yah, you get Obedah, Obadiah. These are Obadiah songs. And so if your name is Obadiah, I don't see our Obadiah here tonight, but if you know somebody whose name is Obadiah, you say, there are four songs about you in the Bible. Um, and, and that's what we're going to be looking at, the servant songs of the Lord. Four songs nestled close together in the latter half of the prophet Isaiah. Here's, here's where they are if you want to write them down. They begin where we started, 42 verses 1 through 9. This is the first song. Song number two is Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 13. The third song is Isaiah 50, 4 through 9. And the final song, the most famous, is Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, which is a hard one if you struggle with dyslexia. 52, 13, 53, 12. So you switch the two and the three there for the final song. Uh, maybe you've never heard of the, this designation, servant songs in Isaiah. Maybe you're, this is brand new to you. But I want you to know you'll recognize the tune, so to speak, of some of these songs. You know some of the words of these songs. Um, a bruised reed he will not break. Uh, I will set my face like a flint. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You know these lines. They're familiar to you. Those are all from the servant songs in Isaiah. And the reason you know them is probably not so much because of your familiarity with Isaiah, but because of your familiarity with the New Testament. The New Testament authors love to quote from these four songs. They love to dip into this portion of Isaiah and to sample from these songs. In fact, the fourth song, the most famous, 52.13 through 53.12, um, is estimated by some scholars to be referenced in the New Testament no less than 39 times. Uh, that must be important then. 39 times it's referenced in the New Testament. Uh, these songs about the servant. Now, let's think about that title for a moment. When used by God, the title servant is never demeaning. In fact, it's one of the most honorific titles that the Lord ever bestows upon 
uh, saints throughout Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. Hear how he describes his unique relationship with Moses. This is Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face. Or recall how the Lord describes Job to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? And he talks about how he's uh, an upright and blameless man. Most frequently in the Old Testament, King David is described as the servant of the Lord. To be a servant is to be highly honored and esteemed by God. Uh, If you look at our verse that we looked at, verse 1 of 42, the parallel pattern uh, that's common in Hebrew poetry. Uh, Hebrew loves to uh, employ parallelisms uh, where one line is sort of then restated by the second line. That helps to prove the point that a servant is actually not a demeaning title at all because we see there in the first line, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Servant and chosen are, 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 are used here as as synonyms. The servant of the Lord is the choicest one of the Lord. Uh, Chosen means elect. It means precious. It means prized possession. The servant of the Lord is the chosen of the Lord. And he is chosen by God to be the hero for God's people. Although the servant is going to be, as we'll see, described in some songs as taking a very lowly position Uh, In the world, in the eyes of God, he's highly regarded, he's esteemed, he's even admired. Uh, What we have in these songs is something like a ballad. You know, a ballad is is, um, a narrative poem that's passed down from one generation to the next to keep some figure, uh, some event, some aspect of history alive. Isaiah's doing something a little bit different. He waxes lyrically about a hero before his history happens. These These are... Uh, um, prophetic poems. These are prophecy songs about a coming servant of the Lord who will rescue God's people even as he brings salvation to the ends of the earth. So then our next question that naturally comes after this is, who is he then? Okay, we've asked and answered what are the songs. Now we want to know, well, who are they about? Who is this servant? Uh, He remains anonymous in each of the four songs, almost frustratingly so. Um, Some 2,000 years ago, there was an African official uh, who was uh, reading a recently purchased copy of the scroll of Isaiah that he had picked up on a um, diplomatic visit to Jerusalem, to the holy city. He got there, a scroll of Isaiah, and now he's in his chariot and he's on the way back to his home. And uh, he pulls out the scroll as a sort of reading material on this long journey. And it's when he gets to the servant songs in Isaiah that he has to put the scroll down. And he turns uh, to his passenger in the chariot and he says, he says this, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say these things? Is it about him or about someone else? We want to know too. That's the question. About whom is the prophet speaking? Uh, the Beatles' hit song, Hey Jude, is infamous for the debates surrounding its main subject. Uh, I'm not really sure why there's a debate, because Paul McCartney is very clear that he wrote it about uh, John Lennon's son, Julian. 
He said, that's who I wrote it for. I just changed Julian. Hey, Jules became Hey Jude because I didn't want it to be awkward for him when he would hear it on the radio. He wrote it to help him get through his parents' divorce. Uh, But nevertheless, in an interview years later, this is what John Lennon had to say. He said that he was writing, Paul wrote it about his... um, his relationship with Yoko Ono, he said this, if you think about it, Yoko's just come into the picture. He's saying, Paul's saying, hey, Jude, hey, hey, John, I know I'm sounding like one of those fans who reads things into it, but you can hear it as a song about me. The words say, go out and get her. Subconsciously, he's saying, go ahead, leave me, be with Yoko. Um, others have gone so far as to say that, that Paul actually wrote it about him Self. So there's a lot of ideas, a lot of theories about who the Jude is and hey Jude. And though perhaps in a less psychoanalytical degree, something similar has taken place in modern scholarship, biblical scholarship, to say who is the subject, who is the servant in these songs. Now, to be fair, there is some mystery surrounding it. Um, As we've already mentioned, Isaiah never once explicitly identifies the servant in any of the songs. Some suggest maybe it's an oblique reference to himself. Maybe he's writing about himself. Others point out, rightly so, that Israel, as a nation, could be the servant. Flip the page, uh, if if you need to, to go back to chapter 41. Uh, This is the position... Right before the first song, in the passage preceding the first song, Isaiah 41, in verse 8, Israel is called God's servant. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, so we see that the uh, comparison or the synonyms there of servant and chosen again, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Although it is undoubtedly true that Israel is called to live up to the ideal that this servant represents, they are not the servant. In fact, if you flip over to Isaiah 48, what do we find in Isaiah 48? We find find God denouncing them for their sin and wickedness such that he says, you shouldn't even really be called Israel. Uh, Isaiah 48.1, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel. So this is right before the servant, second servant song. And who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. You don't even deserve it, God's saying, because of the way you've behaved. Um, there's another place in which we can see that Uh, It is clearly not the nation that's in mind. That's in 49. This is the second servant song. Uh, Here we learn that the servant is sent precisely because Israel is not living up to their calling to be the servant of the Lord. So look what we read of in 49 and verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant. This is the servant speaking. He who formed me from the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. It's because Israel failed to follow after the Lord faithfully that the servant is sent to bring them back. So this can't be Israel. It's somebody outside of Israel going to save Israel. Um, There's another suggestion. Who's the servant? There's another suggestion and that is that the servant is actually the uh, uh, Persian king or emperor Cyrus. 
Where does that come from? Well, that comes from chapter 45. We turn to chapter 45. Again, all of this is right in the middle of these servant songs. Uh, people think that Cyrus could be the servant because in Isaiah 45, there's an oracle to Cyrus, before Cyrus is on the scene, by the way, predicting how he's going to be instrumental in Israel's return from exile. He is called Messiah even. Verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to his Meshach, to his Messiah, to Cyrus, uh, the one that I'm calling to subdue nations and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors that gates may not be closed. Uh, furthermore, in this oracle, similar phrases are used of Cyrus that are used of the servant. However, the contrast is more important than the similarities. And the contrast is this. We see it in verse 4. Cyrus is one who does not know the Lord. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. The servant, though, in the four songs is repeatedly presented or portrayed as one who shares an intimate and a special personal relationship with the Almighty. He's not just used by God like a pawn, but rather, and this is an important title, he's the servant of the Lord. He's the one who wants to do the will of God. He's not unwittingly doing the Lord's work. He is attuned to the presence and the power and the purpose of God in his task. He's supported by God in them. And we read in Isaiah 50, verse 9, he says, the Lord God helps me. Well, how could that be somebody who does not know the Lord? The Lord God helps me. Supported by God, he willingly submits himself to his ways. He's on mission for him. And this is what Isaiah really cares about. More than the identity of the servant, it's the mission of the servant. That's what Isaiah puts out in such clear and poetic and powerful language. These songs were crafted as a comfort to God's people to hear the kind of saving work that would soon be accomplished for them. Listen to some of the breathtaking ways the work of the servant is described. If you want to follow along, the first one's 42, 6 through 7. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's a worldwide savior that is being sung of. Or 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is the mission of the servant and it's a service that culminates in the ultimate sacrifice. Israel will be saved, but their life will cost the life of another. And that's the work Isaiah emphasizes while being uninterested in revealing to us a specific identity. And yet when you read the New Testament, it's this very mission that we've just read of that points us unmistakably to the identity of the servant, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is a light for the nations. He is the one who was pierced for our transgressions. He is the one who brings us by his chastisement peace. He's the one who heals us by his wounds. Do you remember the answer that uh, that African official got? He's in his chariot, he's with Philip, riding back to Cush, to Ethiopia. 
He says, who, I ask you, is this uh, prophet writing about? Is he talking about himself or another? Do you remember Philip's answer? This is what Philip says. Uh, This is what we read of, sorry, in Acts 8. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip recognized who the servant was. It's Jesus. And before we object that Philip may have had a wrong interpretation, we remember that Jesus himself said he was the fulfillment of the servant songs. He says that to John the Baptist. John's in prison. He's come to preach, uh, to prepare a way for the Lord that people would, would turn and would, pre- would, would repent before the Messiah comes. And he, he said that this Messiah is Jesus Christ, of whom I'm not even worthy to, to tie his sandals and all this stuff. And now he's in prison and Jesus is on the scene, but things aren't really changing, Right? Rome is still in charge. There's been no reinstallment of a Davidic dynasty. So he sends messengers to Jesus to just straight up ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? Or should we wait for another? And how does Jesus answer? This is what he says. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. This response relies heavily on messianic texts from the book of Isaiah, specifically even that first song, Isaiah 42, one who would come to give sight to the blind. John wants to know, are you the Messiah? And Jesus' answer is, look at the songs, the servant songs in Isaiah, and you will know that I am he. I am this one. The servant is Jesus who restores the blind, who rescues captives. So what are these songs, four songs, that predict this coming servant who will restore God's people? Who is that servant? We see that servant is Jesus. The final question is, so what? Why do we care? Why why does this matter? Why do we care that there are four passages in Isaiah that are fulfilled in Christ? Well, let me just suggest for us two things. Uh, two things, two reasons that um, uh, would hopefully get you to see that these passages are worth your study and your, um, uh, yeah, your reflection. These are two things that we can keep in mind in the, the remainder of our studies as we unpack each of the songs in turn. These songs help us better understand, first, why Jesus was sent, and then secondly, who sent him. They help us better understand why Jesus was sent and who sent him. I was kind of going back and forth over trying to come up with memorable ways to to, um, organize these subpoints. Another way we could think of it is that these songs help us know the goal of Jesus' ministry and secondly, knowing the God of Jesus' ministry. So whichever is helpful for you. But first... Uh, Why was he sent? What was his mission? What's his goal? Knowing the goal of Jesus' ministry. Uh, The proper, it's it's really as important as this. The proper interpretation of these songs leads us to a proper interpretation of Jesus' ministry, of understanding what he's all about. Part of the confusion surrounding Jesus' time on earth was that people misapplied what it meant for him to be the Messiah. Very frustrating for them, Right? I remember the disciples, uh, and now at this time, will you restore the kingdom? And he's like, are you not listening to anything I'm saying? You know, what they meant by that is, at this time, will you kick out the Romans? At this time, we're going to, you know, set up, set up the, the palace again? 
Uh, they're expecting salvation, but not the kind of salvation that Jesus came to offer. They, they, they had the wrong sort of Messiah in view. In the main, Israel is hoping for a national, a political, uh, militaristic kind of salvation from the hands of their oppressors. Um, and, and God had sent servants to do that sort of thing before. That was the point of Cyrus. Cyrus was that political savior. That one, that, 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 that political, uh, or that servant who would, who would help them in their political distress to, to get them out of exile. God does appoint servants for those means. So it's not like, I think we can often say, you know, Israel, they're so stupid. They don't get it. They just think that it's all about getting away from Rome. No, God does promise that kind of thing. And he even followed through on those promises throughout scripture at various points. But the interesting thing about putting that oracle of Isaiah um, in chapter 45, nestled in, surrounded by these songs, is that it helps us compare the, the difference of these types of servants, the kind of servant that Cyrus was and the kind of servant, servant that Jesus was. Cyrus is a political savior. The servant of the Lord is to be a spiritual savior. His mission is not to bring the people back to the capital, but to bring them back to the king, to the covenant, to bring them back in a personal way, in a... In, in a uh, a soul-saving way, bring them back to their Lord, wherever they might be. They didn't need to be in a particular spot of land in the Middle East. And if that's the servant's mission, to bring the people back into their relation with their covenant Lord, that means the servant will have to deal with sin. Cyrus doesn't have to deal with sin, but this servant will. After all, what is it that has separated God's people from him? Why does the servant have to bring Jacob back to God in the, in the words of the second song? It is not on account of anything external. It's not on account of military forces against them. It's not on account of a regime shift from, from Medes to Persians, Babylonians to Syrians. It's not about that. It has nothing to do with anything external, but something entirely internal, and that is the hardness of their hearts. Let me just say to you tonight, if you are far from God, it's not because you have a job that you hate. It's not because you're in a relationship that's difficult with you. You don't get along well with your spouse or with your children. If you are far from God, it's not because you can't get the right kind of health care. If you're far from God, it's not because you are dealing with, with, with sp uh, physical maladies, though those are uh, struggle to be sure. If you are far from God, it's because you are in rebellion to him. It's because you are a sinner and you need to repent and you need to return. What makes us far from God is sin. That's what separates us from God. And um, Isaiah is addressing that in these servant songs, saying the real issue is going to be dealt with by this servant. Your real issue, the real problem, which is not the Assyrians, which is not the Babylonians, but your own sin, the servant is going to deal with that. And with that in mind, it's perfectly fitting that the fourth song is the final song, because the fourth song we see, that's the one we all know the best, that's, you know, surely he has borne our griefs, um, from Isaiah 53, we see here that the service that the servant renders culminates in sacrifice. Let me say that one more time. This is why it's important that song number four is song number four. The service that this servant renders culminates in sacrifice. How does that help us understand the mission of Jesus? It helps us to see the cross not as a gigantic failure. It helps us to see that the high point of Christ's mission is mysteriously and marvelously at his lowest point. 
Isaiah 53, he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is why he came. But they didn't get it. As we saw previously, even someone as great as John the Baptist, great saint and prophet that he was, he had his doubts. Uh, people were looking for something more powerful, something more remarkable, something to write home about, something immediately effective, right? And that's why we read in John that he comes to his own. His own don't receive him. They don't like the message that he brings. They don't like the ministry that he offers. They didn't understand the point, the aim, the goal of his ministry, which was to pay for their sins and to draw them close to God. They did not understand what their greatest need was. The cross-bearing Christ was a shame to his people. A savior with a cross on his back, carrying that up to Golgotha, that is embarrassing. Interpreting, though, the ministry of Christ through the lens of Isaiah shows us, you and me today, that the cross is truly something to glory in. Praise Jesus there's a cross. Praise Jesus that he came to die, because if he didn't die, I would. This is the high point. We lift high the cross. We exalt God for the cross. We glory in the cross. Here's not a weak man pathetically falling prey to his naysayers and enemies. Here is the servant of God powerfully affecting the release of God's people from the prison of sin, death, and hell. Isaiah teaches us that the suffering of Christ is something not to be ashamed of, but something to rejoice in. We rejoice that God's plan is accomplished. We rejoice that Christ cares about our salvation more than we do. Have you ever thought about that? There's something worth reflecting on. The fact that Jesus wants you to be saved more than you want to be saved. And he's willing to die that you would be saved. His suffering, therefore, is something to sing about. Isaiah teaches us that, helps us to see the goal of his mission, helps us see why he came, helps us to see it's a great thing that we should sing about. The hymn writer Philip Bliss teaches us that as well. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered, paid the debt to set me free. Sing, oh, sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debts, and made me free. Sing of your Redeemer, Isaiah does. And he didn't even know who he was. We know his name. Let's sing of him. Well, the second reason we should care about what Isaiah has to say, final thing tonight. The second reason that we should care is because God says we should care. And here we really do want to dive into just that little passage that we read back to 42 and, and unpack those two lines that we read. So look with me again. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Uh, this first song opens with something like a wake-up call. Behold, it means look, pay attention, look at my servant. And what does God want us to see about his servant? This is really interesting. What does he want us to see about his servant? God wants us to see himself. He wants us to see in the servant something of himself, something of God. That's why he says, behold, my servant 
whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. You look to the servant, you're going to learn something about me, God is saying. Uh, there is nothing unchristlike in God. There is nothing ungodlike in Christ. When we behold Christ, we, we learn of God. It's in the face of Christ we behold the face of God. You remember when Philip was taught that lesson, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. That's all we want. We just want to see the Father. And you remember Jesus. <sighs> Philip, have you been with me so long? <laughs> Do you not get it? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's what Isaiah is saying. Behold, look at my servant. What will you see? You'll see the one that I uphold, the one that delights me. Uh, the first line of the servant song uh, tells us to look upon Jesus and to see one who has upheld every step of his way by the power and the presence of Almighty God. Would that the same could be said of us, that we are upheld every step of the way by God. How often that we look to poor props to, to keep us up, poor substitutes for fulfillment and sustenance of soul. The question is this, what do you look for or what do you look to in order to get you through life? If I could phrase it that way. What gets you through life? Uh, we turn to the security of money uh, or the pleasures of the world or the help of friends and lovers to keep us afloat. And if any of those things are removed from us, we feel like we can't go on. I remember once when I was working in youth ministry, um, uh, we were on a, a missions trip, a youth missions trip, and I had to uh, confiscate one of the teenagers' phone because that was the policy, that there were no phones allowed on the, uh, on the missions trip. And I still to this day remember his, his, his words to me as I, as I took the phone away from him, he said, you're taking away my lifeline. And why I remember it is because of how pathetic it was and yet how relatable it was. I thought, you're ridiculous. This is your lifeline. They thought, you know what? I get it. He was saying, this, is, this got my music. I need the music. And this is how I get in touch with my friends. I need them. This is my lifeline. What's your lifeline? What gets you through? The answer for the servant, the answer for, the Jesus, for Jesus is... It's my food to do the will of my Father. I live for him. I, I, I live by him. My Father is my life. My life is, is my Father, my servant, whom I uphold. Everything that this servant needs to get through life is given to him by God, and he seeks no other help. Uh, to look to Jesus is to also see what pleases God. Isn't that an interesting line? The person in the work of Christ brings delight to God. The one in whom my soul delights. Since there is no hint of sin in Jesus, there is nothing in him that would bring um, displeasure, disgrace, dismay, disappointment to the Father. In Jesus, the, one, the, the Father has finally found the one he's been looking for ever since the creation of the world. One who, who reflects him perfectly. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. God loves that. It makes him happy. He delights in that. Isn't that interesting? We're, we don't always, um, we're not always given such clear statements on, on, on mysteries like that. Like, what brings a smile to God's face? face? Well, here we're told, Jesus does. He delights in him. 
And he announced that at the Jordan River. Remember at the baptism, Matthew 3, the voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Doesn't that sound familiar? This is my servant in whom my soul delights. There's no denying it. Jesus is the servant. And God wants us to see Jesus. The reason it matters so much that we look upon the well-pleasing son, which is what, what our aim is the next six weeks, uh, to, to dive into these songs and to learn about this servant, the one who pleases God. The reason it matters so much, and indeed it matters as much as eternity matters, the reason it matters so much that you look upon, you behold, you by faith look to the one that pleases God, the well-pleasing son, is because when you do that, you become a well-pleasing child of God in him, in him. So have you beheld Christ? Have you seen in him the glories and goodness of the Father? Have you come to the Father through Christ? Your eternal home, your eternal happiness depends upon this. To behold Christ by faith brings us into such a union with Christ that when God looks at us, he sees that son in us. He sees us in him. We are united to Christ so that we can actually do the thing that the servant was predicted to do. We can actually please God. I would love to do that. And I know you would too. Let's pray that the Lord would help us to do it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this portion in Isaiah, which teaches us of the servant who has come to do your will. The one who has accomplished the greatest work of all, which is our salvation. Lord, we want to behold him. We want to know more of him. And we want to be transformed to be more and more like him so that we could be your well-pleasing servants as well. So guide us in these next uh, several studies. Uh, help us to come away enriched and um, informed and uh, ready to serve you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.